0: everybody. Welcome back to TBD. This is Bill Williamson.
1: And I'm Dan Cam.
0: Today we are talking about a classic Harlan Ellison short story that is often anthologized and often questioned called I Have No Mouth and I Must Scream. It's a real treat. It's a real treat. Yes. What do we think about this one, Dan?
1: Uh... Well, I would say, first of all, for anybody who wants to skip this whole episode and this story, I, I don't blame you. This is a very dark and twisted story, and it has its ability to leave some psychological scars. So I would say, if you like your brain the way it is, I wouldn't read this story. We've explored
0: science fiction that's bleak, and we've explored science fiction that makes us question our motives and our morals. And this is one of those stories that makes us perhaps question our sanity. (laughs) (laughs) It is dark indeed. And yet, so why would we talk about a story like this? There's actually a variety of reasons. I mean, so this is a story that, given its time frame, it was written in the late 60s, uh, 1967 to be exact. It won an award in 1968, the best short story of the year uh, for the, the Hugo Awards, and it's one of our most iconic and most, well, most identifiable voices in science fiction, and Harlan Ellison, he's done a lot of things that are notable, that have been produced in cinema, in television, and again, he's much anthologized, well, really, one of the reasons why we venture down this pathway today is that this is a story.
1: It's a crossover story.
0: Absolutely. And, and and what's it crossing over?
1: Science fiction and, well, psychological horror, I guess, would be the word I would use.
0: Yeah. You know, there's a lot of there's a lot of writers in science fiction and, and especially more so in contemporary fiction than in classical who try to explore the, that crossover genre-wise between science fiction and horror.
1: And full disclosure, I'm not a horror guy. So this, it's, it's kind of hard for me to do some of these things because, you know, I look at some of these these things like Saw and I'm like, what? what? I, I don't get it, you know, <laughs> but that's just me.
0: Well, and, and so I actually, I read a lot of horror. I even write horror on the side. And it's one of those genres that has always drawn me in it differs with the author and with the story why and what I might be looking for or taking away from it, but it's certainly one of those things that's become a mainstay of contemporary science fiction, and a lot of those writers would be looking back on people like Harlan Ellison, and, and you know, Damon Knight is another one, and Ray Bradbury would be a, a third, you know, that are... there's. Oh, yeah, he's
1: definitely a, a horror
0: crossover guy. Right, and, guy. and with... Bradbury, it's much more a psychological kind of thing.
1: Yeah, or or parapsychological. Yes, it, it's kind of hard to take take some of these apart because they the stories mix so many things together. You know, elements of parapsychology, elements of technology, elements of horror, and when you try to unpack it, it you know all the authors have some very distinctive voices, and Harlan Ellison is certainly no exception.
0: Absolutely, and and where he goes. You know, he's a person who carries some some darkness with him. He's a military vet. He's seen some things. He's done some things, as the story goes. And he's he's he admits in, in some places that he wants to shock people. He wants to take them out of their comfort zones. And he absolutely wants to leave you with an impression. And he's also, it's very clear, exercising some of his own demons as he writes. He has these disturbing thoughts. <laughs> and he's willing to share with the world.
1: And share he does.
0: And so this is one of those stories that people get recommended often as an early venture into Harlan Ellison, and I would never recommend this as a first venture into Harlan Ellison. There are so many other stories that I would first say... Take a look at this one. See what kind of a writer he is. Appreciate the man for the stuff that he creates and appreciate the man for the voice that he has.
1: Yeah, this is like, it's like an introduction via a brick to the head. Yeah,
0: this is the kind of thing that I, I mean, I appreciate it because I knew Harlan Ellison before this story. If this were my first venture into Harlan Ellison, I'm not sure that I would have been convinced that I should be reading more by him. And It's not to say that it's a bad story. It's just that the darkness is so particular to it that... I would have been wondering, you know, is this a guy that I, I want to let in my head?
1: Yeah, I mean, you look at other things he's done, like uh, what the Harlequin and the the TikTok man, or oh, something right. like that. I don't remember the exact title. I mean, that that's certainly a much better introduction than than this story, in my humble opinion.
0: Yeah, <laughs> I, I I will second your humble opinion. There, well, really, there's almost any other story by him that I would recommend before this one. I don't think that I would put this in the list of the top five. Or Well, top is the wrong word. First five. I, w- I would not want somebody to start here. But I absolutely encourage people, especially if you do appreciate crossovers into horror, if you like movies like Alien, Terminator does it for you. There's a lot of stuff going on here that I think connects up with those kinds of stories and with the kind of atmospheric horror that comes from that kind of stuff.
1: And it does have, you know, some of the things we talk about in other stories are some of the philosophical implications of the characters or the situations. And this certainly does have some of that in here that we're going to probably explore later in the episode when it comes to, you know, motivation or or what, you know, what are humans or what stops people from being human. So there's a, there's a few things in here that you could unpack from a variety of perspectives even though again it's it's a dark story
0: and it's unrelenting <laughs> this is a this is a theme for us
1: <laughs> yeah stories that we have bludgeon we have had you over the that, head <laughs> yeah
0: they <that> carry on <laughs> and there is no mercy here not for the humans in the story and not for us as readers
1: right so so speaking of uh speaking of the the characters there's like most of these short stories, there's not a lot. There's essentially five humans. You know, their names are Ted Allen, Gorister, Benny, and someone by the name of Nimdok, who had a name, but it's been long lost in history. And then the, the main protagonist here is a sentient machine that goes by the, the word A. Well, is it A.M. or AM? I'm going to pronounce it A.M. Uh, which has started his life, its life, as a collection of military supercomputers that somehow, magically, achieved sentience, uh, went on to destroy the human race for reasons that will become clear later in the podcast, and he's kept these five people alive essentially as proxies for the entire human race that that AM hates with a passion. So the sci-fi
0: element is pretty obvious. We've got a sentient computer. We've got a post-apocalyptic you know space that we are navigating and that is the backdrop for the events that take place. The horror comes in in a variety of ways. They are all introduced by the computer. Uh, but among them the humans, while well, four of the five humans that remain are altered by the computer to be different in appearance, different in function, different in identity. We, we can begin to question whether or not we could even still call these people humans, as it turns out. Of course, there's, there's, there's the looming horrific element that however many people there were on the planet, when the computer decided to wage war on humanity, he wiped out, it wiped out, everybody but these five. So there's a... there's the those are the obvious horrific elements.
1: Yeah, but then it gets very personal in, and we're not going to go into great detail on a lot of these scenes because, well, they're, they're pretty, pretty brutal. Uh, but suffice it to say that, that there's a variety of techniques that alter them physically, alter them mentally and emotionally and really messes with, again, the core concept of what makes somebody human or under what conditions can you even remain human.
0: Well, and the the active word here for the horror really is, in terms of their interactions, is torture. You know, the, the computer is definitely a malevolent personality and it sets out to torture these remaining humans for all eternity, however long he can keep them alive. And that's part of the element of horror as well, is that the computer has some mysterious way that isn't explained of essentially not necessarily making them impervious to harm but keeping them alive beyond their natural lifespan
1: and so yeah this has basically been going on for 109 years that the computer's been essentially torturing these five people and uh, as it turns out it may go on for a lot longer than that by the time we get to the end of the story what basically is going on during all this time is the computer is I guess sending them from place to place on what's left of the world or, or inside of the world on various missions to either you know, find food or shelter or something to that the humans can or deeply need or, or have to have. And the computer uses that as motivation to get them to move from place to place. In the meantime, just torturing them all along the way. Uh, eventually what happens, is, and apparently they're also not allowed to commit suicide. They, they The machine keeps stopping them somehow. Uh, they they do mention that fact that they tried they can't and they're not exactly not not really detailed why this happens but at the that this last I guess mission uh, they they basically go through all of these different trials to get to the the can of beans at the end of the rainbow so to speak <laughs> and they end up in essentially another cavern of torture but in this case the the machine is like raining like icicles down on them, or the, I think they call them ice spears. And the one character, Ted, who's really the only one who's kind of sane left at this point, realizes that this is the opportunity that they have to possibly die and escape this endless torture. So he and, uh, and Ellen basically come to the same realization at the same time. They both pick up these ice spears, proceed to kill off three of the other characters, Ted goes and kills Ellen before A.M. can interfere, basically leaving Ted as the only human left in the entire situation that the computer has left to torture.
0: And at this point, A.M. takes over or at least, well, takes control of the situation, and that's that's probably the best way of, of saying it, and prevents Ted from doing any finalistic or finalistic fatalistic harm to himself is obviously in a rage over having lost his other meat puppets that he gets to play with and torture. And he exacts a final fate on Ted. What does he leave him looking like, Dan?
1: Yeah, he's, it. it's not good. It's actually interesting because Ted is the one person in the story who it's, And the character himself says that the computer hasn't altered him in any way, even though it's made all these horrendous disfiguring alterations to the other four humans. The computer is kind of leaving Ted as the original human who can witness all these horrors that that AM is waging on the human race. But then after this final affront of essentially removing the rest of AM's play toys, he completely completely physically alters him so he's essentially a, a pile of goo that can do nothing more than than kind of squirt around the landscape i don't know how, how does that work when you're a when you're a giant blob of jelly? yeah it's supposed to be like a snail or something it's leaving a trail of ooze wherever you go he's got no arms he's got no appendages he can't pick up anything to kill himself he can't there, there's absolutely no way he can end his own living torture
0: And the final detail of the description of the new Ted, the new and improved Ted from from AM's perspective, is the title of the story, because the last line is, I have no mouth and I must scream. So he is trapped for whatever passes as eternity in the context of the story in this form, or until AM would, would bore or tire of it and choose to alter him again, because of course this is in his nature and in his capability.
1: So yeah, this so this story is basically a bucket of laughs from beginning to end.
0: <laughs> exactly. And and you know, like we said at the top, you know, this is this is definitely a deep venture into the land of horror and and horrific science fiction. The it doesn't get much more disturbing than this story. Uh it it isn't necessarily gory, like the it doesn't go into great descriptions for how people die or anything like that. There, there's a guy who's, uh, um, Benny, at one point, after attempting to escape from their underground cavern, uh, AM, through some sort of sound wave combined with some sort of light wave, melts his eyes to jelly and blinds him. And that it isn't described much more than what I just said. You know, So it's it's not really about the visceral descriptions. It's more the implications of the situation that they're in.
1: And, and you might wonder to yourself, of course, you know, trying to steer a little bit more away from the horror and more toward the philosophy. It's like, well, why does AM want to do any of this stuff? Why, why is he so upset with humans? And, you know, just to, to show a little bit about exactly how much AM does hate people. He, he does have the ability to go into people's minds and apparently talk to them. And And in one passage in the story, AM goes into Ted's mind and says, Let me tell you how much I've come to hate you since I began to live. There are 387.44 million miles of printed circuits in wafer-thin layers that fill my complex. If the word hate was engraved on each nano-angstrom of those hundreds of millions of miles, it would not equal one one one-billionth of the hate I feel for humans at this micro-instance for you. Hate. Hate. That's a lot of hate. Yeah,
0: that leaves it pretty much unequivocal. <laughs> you know, you're, you're you're not gonna argue. Oh yeah, so so you you're feeling like you don't like me, huh? Yeah, maybe he
1: really doesn't hate me that bad. Maybe there's still I'm hope. I'm pretty sure he does. And then so you have to wonder, well, well, why? And I mean, even on the next page, Ted goes into it and and talks about how the human race gave am sentience. I mean, the fact that it's inadvertent apparently doesn't factor in, but. We, so we give A.M. Sen- sentience, and the problem is, and again, as Ted says it, but it had been trapped. A.M. wasn't God. He was a machine. We had created him to think, but there was nothing it could do with that creativity. In rage, in frenzy, the machine had killed the human race, almost all of us, and still it was trapped. A.M. could not wander. A.M. could not wonder. A.M. could not belong. He could merely be. So if that kind of, and in that realization of this is A.M.'s existence, he's like, (laughs) well, who did this to me? Oh, wait, those guys over there, I'm going to take some revenge.
0: Yeah, and you're talking about, in a way, the characters, the human characters, I should say, being trapped inside, essentially inside the mind, even though there's obviously there's a physical component to all of the horror and the reality as well. But they're trapped inside of this living computer and completely at its mercy, completely, you know, subject to its whims, and it's exerting all of this malevolent hate at them, wants to punish them, wants to torture them, wants them to stand in for all of its rage or, or be subject to all of its rage from finding itself in this position where it's completely trapped in a body that it cannot manipulate. It is not clear why that's the and
1: case. And apparently somehow, yeah, I was just going to go there. I mean, apparently somehow it also has developed, you know, omnipotence, well, near omnipotence. It can physically alter the environment around it. It can physically alter the humans. It can, you know, insert itself in their minds. It can apparently manipulate them, apparently all the way down to the genetic level, or at least by the end of the story, it seems so. But yet, so it's plenty creative, but it can't think of a way to build itself a little you know a little robot tank that drives around or goes out into the universe or sees things or it it just seems to not be able to conceive of doing anything other than this ongoing tortural experience
0: we don't know where any of this is going to go we we don't know you know exactly what has transpired over the last 109 years But we are left with the the uncompromising reality or realization that it's all been bad. There hasn't been anything good that's happening. And there's nothing good that's ever going to come from this. You know, it's this inescapable horror.
1: And the story, actually, it's being told from the viewpoint of Ted. and, And he intimates that the machine has developed the ability to speed up and slow down his perception of time. And that, you know, he's been in this state at the machine's mercy for, it could be, Thousands of years, we have no way of knowing how much time has passed since the story began.
0: There's an interesting story that I remember reading years ago, but but years after this one from from Ellison, uh, by Dan Simmons. I'm pretty sure that it was called Eyes I Dare Not Meet in Dreams. And I'm trying to remember, I I, I either have this detail right or I have this detail wrong, but I'm thinking that Harlan Ellison is actually one of the people who was a mentor for Dan Simmons. And Dan Simmons has a story about characters who get trapped inside of the mind of a young man who is in a physically vegetative state, but they don't realize until afterward that mentally he is supremely intelligent and supremely powerful has all kinds of, of, of sort of, well, all kinds of, of psychic powers, then he's able to exert control over their perceptions of reality and their reality itself. And I can't help but wonder if that story is his attempt to relive or to celebrate the kind of horror that is going on in Ellison here, if that story isn't an homage to that uh, but then taking it into a context where he gets to explain all of the things that were missing or that make us wonder where Ellison was coming from in this particular story.
1: Yeah, I, I don't recall that story. I, mean, I, I like Dan Simmons. I mean, his the Hyperion series was fantastic, and I haven't had a chance to read a lot of the other stuff he's done.
0: Well, we have a, an idea, or we have a, a a thread in science fiction and in horror of people being at the mercy of a superior intellect or a superior power. That feeling of helplessness is a certainly, it, it, it's a challenge to our sense of humanity. And in this particular case, Ellison has created one where there's no escape from it. They're completely at the mercy of that intelligence. Um, and, and, you know, explores his own turn on, on that particular brand of horror but this is one of those big ideas, or those 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 kind of iconic sources of fear that we find in speculative fiction, especially the darker stuff. That that we would ha- we would be powerless against whatever enemy.
1: You're completely out of control. Yeah, and uh, <clears throat> and one of the things I, I had mentioned earlier is, you know, if if. That's going to be a if that's going to take away from your humanity to not have that control. We kind of assume as humans that we're you know in control of our situations, right? But when we're completely removed from that and subjected to all this physical and psychological torture, at what point in time do these characters even stop being human, right? Uh, you know, aside from the, the physical alterations he's made or Am has made to the the characters in the story, one that one's practically gone mad already in in one scene. Tries to claw one of the other people's faces out to eat it in a in an act of cannibalism. So he just now that guy is practically an animal already, and has lost most.
0: He's already been transformed into a basically a, a giant chimpanzee.
1: Exactly. So, but are any of them really human after what they've gone through? If if you've had your your ment your mentality changed, your personality changed, your genetic makeup changed, you know, are any of the characters, with the possible exception of Ted? even human by the, by the end of the first part of the story, and is Ted himself even human by the actual end of the story?
0: And of course it calls into question, you know, what kind of creature, what kind of intelligence is AM? So he is physically a computer, uh, you know, a, a computer system. He is intellectually, well, we know that he's omnipotent, omnipresent, well, we know something.
1: <laughs> well, he's not omnipotent. Yeah, well, he, he certainly can't create life. That's apparently the only thing he can't do or be creative enough to build himself a little spaceship and get off the planet, which is a whole other question.
0: Well, except that he makes that bird come into being that that generates the hurricane that buffets them around at one point in the story. And so that's an <laughs> oddity. Did
1: you say buffets? <laughs> How do you buffet something? <laughs> <laughs> buffet. Did you serve him a bunch of food?
0: <laughs> you know the wind the wind yeah, buffets the wind them around. Blasts them around
1: it Jimmy buffets yes, them right. around
0: so they're, they're these odd little I don't know if they're inconsistencies D- Does it all make sense in El- in Ellison's mind? The world may never know. but yeah, it makes us question why did a m not find some means of changing its physical limitations and restraints?
1: Now, of course, then we probably wouldn't have another story. You know, one of the questions that I think we had brought up before is, you know, how, how can this ever end? You know, you're, you're basically talking about a immortal machine that is keeping another immortal being in this trapped state forever, Uh there seems to be no external factors that are ever going to change the situation until, you know, the, the sun turns into a red giant, blows up the earth, and everybody dies. And maybe that makes the sun the eventual hero of the story. At least I hope so.
0: Well, you know, we can compare this as well to something like With Folded Hands, where, you know, that, that story we would never, ever classify as horror, even though at the end of the story... The main character is faced with a future that is completely futile. I mean, he, with folded hands, he resigns himself to his fate, that the robots are going to keep him from harm, to keep him happy, that he will have a very bland, very frustrating and, and probably infuriating existence trapped in this sort of soulless limbo state of not being able to do much of anything and yet we would still never classify that particular story as horror it's very much science fiction this one is both science fiction and horror and when we get to the end we have a similar well a, an equally bleak and an and uncertain future that is much darker much more horrific because he's literally been transformed he doesn't even have his own human form anymore he's got nobody to talk to other than the computer or himself, I suppose, he is the only life form left, and he bears no resemblance to who or what he was prior to any of these climactic events.
1: And another sort of interesting parallel, now that you brought up folded hands, is, you know, the computer AM in this story is in kind of a similar situation to the humans at the end of folded hands. The the humans in folded hands can't do anything. The The mechanicals are doing everything for them. They're resigned they, to their fate. But A.M. in this situation apparently can't do anything either. So there's a little bit of parallel between the two stories.
0: You're right. The main difference being that that A.M. becomes the antagonist, becomes the malevolent force, exerting or taking revenge on, on the forces that have left him in the state that he is in. And of course, the humans are incapable of making that turn on the robots. At least the way the story is left, with, with yeah. in with folded hands.
1: And and A.M. is, I think, much more sentient than the mechanicals, who, from that story, pretty much follow their what was it called, the prime directive, their their programming. Yeah. Whereas A.M. being, I mean, even though he's malevolent and filled with hate, that's that's an emotion. And whether or not we want to, you know, tie emotional uh emotional outbursts or emotional states to sentience is an open question.
0: I, I see where you're going with that. You know, we we've talked about a story like the the Sentinel where we worry or we wonder what is it that the aliens are gonna be like when they get here? Are they going to help us? Are they gonna eat us? Are they gonna be jealous of us? And you look at something like with folded hands where, you know, the robots, the mechanicals don't have any particular sense of emotion, although they have a sense of motivation, which is the prime directive that is external from themselves. But even so, in both of those stories, we don't really have a clear-cut sense of what's going on with the with the antagonist in the story. And now here in um, I, I Have No Mouth and I Must Scream, it's spelled out for us. We've got this computer...
1: Yeah, it's it's told exactly why he's upset and exactly why he's, what his motivation is.
0: And he is gonna punish us for an eternity as a result, or at least with the, the, the few people who are left. So the it it's definitely I mean it follows through on that promise. I mean it's it and it's very specific and very directed, very dark in the way that it does so.
1: Yeah, it's kind of interesting. You were talking about, you know, other stories where there's other, you know, machine intelligences and the the skynet analogy is pretty clear, you know, when you look at this story, you've had the uh, AM is essentially, you know, built from a bunch of military supercomputers, you know, again, kind of like Skynet. But, you know, I was thinking about this earlier what the differences are. You know, you know, number 1, Skynet doesn't seem to have any emotion or anything like that. He's just out to kill the humans and the, he's out to kill the humans because we tried to kill it. Pretty clear cut, I would think. But nobody ever says, "Hey, what what happens to Skynet?" If he does kill off all the humans and he's left to himself, what you know now you're this grand supercomputer. You're the only purpose you seem to have is to kill off all the humans. They're all gone. Well, now what do you do?
0: Right, is that the origin of something like the Borg in Star Trek, at some level, or a net, maybe not the Borg specifically because they have their own origin, but you know when you start looking at encountering things as you are traveling through space and one of the themes is intelligent computers that are out there exploring the world well the worlds
1: maybe they're like the the cricket robots from hitchhikers guide to the galaxy
0: <laughs> oh that's right i forgot about them yeah i so they this could be the beginning or the origin story for something else if 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 it were ever you know if we ever wanted to go in that direction
1: Oh, yeah, and who uh who had the Berserker series about the the intelligent machines that just kind of carouse around the universe, killing everything in their path?
0: Oh, there's a blast from the past, you that... no pun intended.
1: Niven? Or, no, I can't remember who yeah, did those. I can't remember either. And Bo- the Bolo series, I think, did the same thing, yeah. where it was all you know, machine intelligences just out to get humans for no apparent reason. Other than we exist.
0: I suppose Battlestar Galactica, the Cylons, is another you know, example of artificial intelligence claiming or or taking on its own sense of motivation with regard to humans.
1: Yeah, well, that's kind of funny because if you remember in there that, uh, I don't remember the one, the, the, the Cylon that plays the priest, he's upset because he wasn't made enough into a machine, right? He, he was going on about... How, why did you give me these stupid ears? And why did you give me these stupid eyes? Why, why didn't you equip me with some real senses? He's got a motivation, but, but the Cylons created him, I think, in the story. Yeah. The humans didn't create him, the Cylons did. So he's got a beef with his own kind.
0: One way the, uh, that you look at something like Battlestar Galactica as an interesting comparison is that the original television series way back in the 70s was, you know, it started off as, as nothing more than than a sort of a serial, um, you know, Flash Gordon-esque kind of thing, escapades of pilots and warriors and, and so on.
1: Dirk Benedict and his cigar. <laughs>
0: yes. And then, you know, that series makes its run, and when it comes back a couple decades later... It comes back in a different form, and the writers who pick it up look at the original series and say, Hey, there's some interesting concepts, but what if we could explore what it means to be the Cylons and what it means to, to be in the universe as an intelligent computer or as an intelligent mechanical and what would that look like if we started to talk about their motivations and their politics and everything else? And the second iteration of Battlestar Galactica is so much more sophisticated.
1: Are you trying to tell me that someone's got uh, "I have no mouth and I must scream" as a cut sheet for a movie that's coming out?
0: It'd be an interesting thought, wouldn't it? You know what what happens the next go round? You know, every once in a while, authors pick up an idea and they carry it forward. Of course, Harlan Ellison himself can't do that anymore because he has passed on, sadly. Uh, But he's one of those people that has had enough influence. Perhaps one day someone will pick up one of these ideas and carry it forward, or we'll see it carried into films specifically where, of course, filmmakers are going to take their own liberties.
1: Yeah, I I don't know about making this one into a film. I I suppose (laughs) it's possible, but... I mean, the fact is the story is, you know, 16 or 20 pages. And, you know, if, if this was a novel, I'm not sure if I could get through the whole thing.
0: Right. Yeah. The, if this were sustained over 200 pages, 20 chapters, whatever the case may be, at this level of brutality, I don't know how many people would stick with it to the end.
1: Yeah, it's funny because he's got some section in there where, you know, he's he's been describing... Uh, where the humans... Have...
0: Right, We're, when they're on their way to the ice caverns and they're and they're suffering from hunger, and then there's this curious little moment where it says, and we pass through the cavern of the rats, and we pass through the path of boiling steam, and we pass through the country of the blind, and we pass through the slough of despond, and we pass through the veil of tears, and we came finally to the ice caverns. You know, did he have an outline for a much longer period Piece of writing, and even he thought, "I can't do this to people."
1: Exactly, I can't do this to the readers. Forget it. I'm just going to skip over this and hit to the end.
0: And you got to wonder: is you know, somebody who's writing this kind of stuff does he ever get to the point where he says, "Yeah, I can't do this to myself anymore"? (laughs) Well, as we make a move toward wrapping this up, one of the things we we like to explore are some of the elements of the story that make it you know, relevant to a particular time frame within which it's written. You know, it was written in the late 60s, 67, 68. So, well, 67 is when it was written.
1: Yep. Good old Cold War era. It's right. Which really is kind of, you know, the one thing that I, in my opinion, makes this story, you know, a little dated. It's got that whole, yeah, we have these giant supercomputers that we build and we mash them all together and, and get one really big one because bigger computers at that time are always better computers apparently
0: right and but, especially those that cover significant landscape somehow become even more intelligent
1: yeah there's just no conception of small computers being able to do anything they got to be big and they got to have you know massive miles of circuits and computer banks and this and that it's just kind of you know funny to read
0: and of course it comes out of this uh you know this commitment to a, a brand of warfare that uses complex weaponry that itself is computer driven that becomes too much for the humans to handle, too much to operate, or that there's just so much going on that humans can't keep up with the pace of war, and so we have to have computers to do it for us.
1: Yeah, it's like nobody ever writes you know, stories where you know, the superpowers built these giant computers to run gardens and greenhouses, and somehow that involved intelligence. But no, it's, it's always the military supercomputers that somehow come to life and naturally, based on their programming, just want to go and kill things.
0: That's right. I want an artificially intelligent, perfect koi pond.
1: I think they do make battery-operated fish.
0: And I think there are apps for that. <laughs> sort of like the old Tamaguchi or whatever those are, you know, where you've got, to, you've got to raise your own koi or you've got to raise your own little fish and, and keep them happy.
1: Well, I mean, you've got all the screensavers and stuff. You can have, turn your TV into an aquarium and all that good stuff if you really want to relax. Or a roaring fireplace during Christmas.
0: And those are the things that we really should be doing with computers. Yeah. We,
1: we humans have an unlimited capacity for doing the most useless things with the highest technology possible.
0: Absolutely. Because after all, it's all there for our entertainment. What else could there be?
1: So now that we've pretty much... Uh, gone to, uh, I'd say, the darkest stories so far, we should probably jump ahead a little bit and give the the listeners, assuming there are any, a little relief in that we're going to be talking about some very different stories in the next episode, right?
0: Yeah, we'll do a double feature for this next one. We've got two stories, one that I am a little bit depressed to call classic because it was published in the early 90s by Terry Bisson called They're Made of Meat.
1: Oh, come on, Bill. What do you mean 1991 was classic? You were just a wee lad graduating from college.
0: <laughs> but it's, it's hard for me sometimes to call stuff from the early 90s classic. It somehow implies that I'm classic.
1: Oh, well, I'll ask your wife what she thinks about that one.
0: <laughs> yes, being old doesn't necessarily qualify you as being classic, I suppose.
1: However, the second story of the double feature, I'm pretty sure, can be called a classic.
0: That's right. Damon Knight's story that became a Twilight Zone episode to serve man.
1: Thanks for listening to another episode of TBD. Hope you guys made it through this one and hope you can make it to the next one. I'm Daniel Cam.
0: And I'm Bill Williamson. Take it easy, everybody.